Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Building Security in the Next Decade podcast. I'm Drew Kilborn. And I'm Sammy Miguez. Together, we have about 60 years of experience in the software and security spaces. This is where we talk with industry leaders about the cybersecurity challenges waiting for all of us just over the horizon. Today, it's our great pleasure to introduce our friend Larry Fitzpatrick. Larry is Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for One Main Financial. As CTO, Larry sets technology strategy, is accountable for the delivery of innovative digital capabilities to meet customer needs, and assures reliability and security of core systems and infrastructure. He oversees the work of a skilled team of technology professionals dedicated to designing, engineering, and delivering the systems and services necessary to support one main's continued growth. Larry previously worked at Amazon Web Services, designing new technical services for the financial industry. He has more than 30 years of experience building and leading technology organizations across industries. Always looking for the intersection of growth and innovation, he's been the CTO of software product companies, president of a systems integrator, senior vice president in corporate IT, and headed up R&D at leading research institutions. Larry earned a master's in science in biomedical engineering from the University of Virginia and received his undergraduate degree in biology from Georgetown University. Larry, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you. Well, we've known each other for a long time. I think uh, 16, 17 years, maybe something like that. It's been a while, yeah. right? Uh-huh. So uh, I really appreciate you spending a little quality time with Sammy and I today. So why don't we jump right in? So from your perspective, what events or innovations over the last, say, five to seven years have led us to the state of cybersecurity today? Over the last five to seven years? Yeah. Um, I think the the big things that have, have really, really changed are sort of the scale at which um, companies operate in the public sector, uh, so public internet, cloud. I mean, I go... I go way back. I started. I cut my teeth on the early internet, right? And at that time, you know, it was a trusting environment. Everybody trusted everybody else, and there was no such thing as sort of like cybersecurity incidents at all. We had phone freaks and clips stole, you know, found some KGB agents stealing cycles off his computer. Um, wrote some books about it. But when the internet went public, um, you know, became the need to have you know, protection at the boundary, and it was really infrastructure focused. The focus on application security really started, I think, in the mid to late 2000s. That's when I met you, Drew. You were working for a software quality assurance company that, you know, I had brought in to help us with some things, and you sold us on the, the benefits of application security. I'll say I was resisting at first because um, I was already dealing with about, you know, eight crazy monkeys jumping around trying to you know, get systems built and modernizations done. And this was just one more thing. But after working with you and putting it in place, it kind of became foundational. Um, you know, I think that the level of of aggressive actors on the internet and everybody becoming much more digital, companies becoming much more digital, has really just upped the game. Um, from having to protect against uh, state actors who are looking to disrupt us to the level of tooling that's out there for 
sort of non-technical people to be aggressors um, has 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 really ramped up. The scale of cloud computing allows allows uh, more sophisticated attacks. Machine learning is starting to enter into the picture where people are being more sophisticated about how they make attacks. Um, I just think it's a it's a continued escalation of of threats. So let's just pardon me. Let's just go with people, process, technology, and culture. There was a lot of um, individual things there. Do you feel any? Uh, just to use that list, do you feel that any one of them has sort of put us where we are today more than the other? You know, in the people, process, technology, and culture buckets, you know, did one of us, did one of them pull us to where we are today more than any of the others, in your opinion? Well, I, I started as a software developer. So, you know, what software developers say, the limitation to how much we can do is always hardware. So I, I think actually having the infrastructure now, um, you know, of, of technology globally connected, with super powerful infrastructure that's totally democratized um, has has really leveled the playing field for both good and bad. And so um, I think the underlying causative force is really just the technology enablement. I mean, people are who people are. I mean, I don't know, you go back 200,000 years or 10,000 years, right? People are who they are, right? Some people will take advantage of situations and some people won't. Um, so I, I just think the enabling factors are the, are the real drivers here. Mm. So just to, again, to, to keep on the vein of what brought us to where we are today, whatever we think the state of cybersecurity is today, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago, like you say, that we were, you know, banging two rocks together to get ones and zeros out so we could run the mainframe. You know, um, you, not you particularly, um, the folks who were in charge when we were starting to figure out how to use the internet, never had an internet. Yeah. And, and then the folks who were in charge after that learned from that prototype internet, that very first trusting environment. And and then we got the people who were in charge after that. Um, what, you know, do we need to go teach them something? I mean, what, what, is that part of the problem is that the people who are in charge never had to face the problems we have to face today? Well, I mean, I would, yeah, I think you have a point there. I think ultimately what's changed in the last five to five to 10 years is awareness. Um, I, I, I think back when we were doing it through in the, in the late two thousands, uh, we were way ahead of the curve as far as companies go understanding what um, internet threats look like and what cybersecurity really uh, meant for sustaining a business and protecting it. Now, um, especially with public companies, uh, it, it can ruin careers, it can take businesses down. Um, and there is, and I think the amplification by um, government in creating awareness um, around cyber warfare um, and state actors has also contributed to that. And I know back around the late 2000s, there were a whole bunch of organizations that government organized around, you know, critical infrastructure protection programs. And those are starting to take their, you know, take their hold where, you know, if you're not keeping up with um, what's going on in the industry or what government is saying you should do, 
um, then you're a bit of a laggard. You know, NIST has done tremendous things in terms of creating um, material for people to be able to adopt. And I would think that um, sort of like, I almost think of the Washington DC metro area as almost being a font of creation of a lot of cyber skilled people coming out of the security agencies and so forth, just seeding industry with knowledge of, you know, how bad it can be and how to take protective measures and, um, and, and education around it. So, so yeah, I think that's been probably the biggest change in the last five to eight years. Going back to your original question is just the awareness at, at the executive level, um, the business level, investor level of, of, uh, of the risks. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the executive order is has definitely put started to put people on, on, on you know notice, and and this is starting to create more and more standards now that have a little more teeth and actual prescription to them. And I think that'll definitely help the industry from that perspective. So I have another question for you. Um, being the CIO, how do you see the role? Let's talk about risk for a second. So when you look at CIO versus CISO, how, who owns the AppSec risk? And how do you kind of manage the, the balance between those two uh, when you look at application security risk? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think our, our interests are actually aligned there. Um, I think the CIO or CTO's job, as opposed to the CISO job, is to try and inject um, balance which is making sure that we're evaluating the trade-offs that go into making a decision. Um, you know, that old security saying that if only there were no users, we could be secure. You know, it's not <laughs> you have to conduct business, right? Right. And so I think the CISO is in a pretty difficult position where um, they are incentivized to total protection, right? Which is unrealistic. Right. And so um, I think the, the counterbalance from the CTO or CIO position has to be to make it a business decision, right? And make it clear that um, as part of your risk management framework, you're willing to accept a certain level of risk or not um, in order to get a certain level of protection. I think it's a little bit easier for the CIO, CTO to do that than the CISO, especially if the CISO doesn't report to the CIO or CTO. Um, you know, just because of the nature of the position. And I think that's the responsibility that we have. Yeah, I've seen a few companies that have said, well, the CISO will own all the risk. Um, yeah, not workable. And, <laughs> but, but the CISO doesn't own any of the software, right? So yeah, it's like, right. how possibly could they mitigate that risk, okay, if they right. don't own the software that needs to be fixed? Uh, and that's never really worked well. But I've definitely seen a few companies try that, and uh, it always ends poorly. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, think... I have to add, you know, in the BSIM community, the current BSIM community of 130 companies, a substantial portion of them, almost 50%, don't even have a CISO. They don't have anyone in that role. Wow. Yeah, and that's starting to change, definitely. You've seen that, that role really pop up more and more over the last five years uh, and really start to get some teeth, without a doubt. Uh -huh. Okay, so let's let's flip the page, Larry. Let's look forward now. So the next five to seven years, what do you see as the biggest challenges for cybersecurity? In particular, as a CIO, well, what do you what keeps you awake at night? What do you think you have to 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 fix or get your arms around? What do you think the next big challenges will be that are in front of us? Um, a, a few things, I think, in the technology realm, 
Um, I don't know if quantum computing is like nuclear fusion, like it's always 10 years away. Uh, but if quantum computing starts to take a toehold, I think that could be a real game changer. And I just noticed that some people are forecasting 2030 is going to be our, you know, um, Y2K problem for security. Um, I, I think that could be pretty, pretty, imp pretty impactful in terms of, in terms of what we do. Um, and so for me, like trying to understand like how far away that is, um, what are the things that we can be doing and when should we be doing them in order to prepare for that? Um, if it becomes an eventuality is probably not too early to think about because the lead time on changing infrastructure is pretty long. I think the advantage of being in the cloud might actually mitigate a lot of that because a lot of our cloud providers are investing pretty heavily in, in security, which is a bit of an advantage for us when we get a tailwind on that. The bigger one I think is, um, I think there's a, there's a cultural one and there's probably a personnel one. I really worry and we really build security in. And I'll, I'll give you one of my sort of like pet peeves is in technical architecture, we have a lot of design patterns. And I've seen over and over and over again in my career where these design patterns aren't really well understood and they turn into anti-patterns. And I'll give you some examples. Um, the number of times I've come across software systems that actually are implementing distributed transactions where the builders didn't really understand that's what they were doing, so had key failure points, is rather alarming. And um, queuing, um, it's a lovely uh, mechanism to make something synchronous, asynchronous, or provide a little bit more reliable delivery into something, but it has very complicated failure modes and operational requirements that generally don't get factored into in the NFR analysis of solutions and quickly become um, failure points as opposed to success points. Um, high availability configurations of personally three times in my career unwound HA configurations to get higher availability. Um, and so I worry about when I look at like these are really well known like architectural patterns that go back decades and we can't get them right. Like when you start thinking about the sophistication of security and the attack vectors and how you have to be prepared for that, how do you actually educate a workforce that can stand up to the challenge is I think a, a pretty, pretty tall undertaking. Um, and is, I don't know if it's changed yet, but I remember our old colleague from Sigimal, yours, your colleague, Gary McGraw, you know, 50% of threats can be you know, are sort of like design threats and like, right. there aren't great tools for that. So um, how do we tackle that problem? That that seems like a big one. Um, the last one that I've, I'm starting to see inklings of already being sort of like a threatening problem is um, where do we find the line between predictive threat analysis and unacceptable surveillance? Um, you know, machine learning is a great tool for probabilistically determining something might be happening, but that doesn't mean it's a certainty. And so when we start putting sort of like insider threat surveillance tools in place, for instance, right, are we creating a workforce that is overwatched, that feels under the gun, you know, micro inspected? Um, does that have some negative connotations and will there be pushback against that? How strong is the pushback? And where do we find that balance between using predictive tools, which should be able to indicate modulo signal to noise 
fidelity, right, conditions that warrant investigation. But we're still pretty early in the game. And I think there seems to be a tendency at times of, I've noticed in certain places where folks think that because the tool predicted it, it must be so. And so you mount a pretty large response. And then that becomes a bit of a unwarranted exercise that you spend a lot of energy doing something that probably didn't, didn't need to happen, right? And create. So I, I worry about that balance between predictive threat analysis and unacceptable surveillance. It's sort of like a cultural phenomenon. And I think what we've seen with cultural phenomenon is it takes you know, a decade or more for that to work its way through the pipe and people to come to the right balance. We just have to run lots of experiments, right? Litigate things, deal with the consequences of our decisions, whether that's litigation or employment or whatever, and then eventually come to a, come to a good understanding. So I think we're really early in the game on that. And I think the next decade could really see us spacing that down. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have... 17 questions. Uh, But I'll just make a statement on that last thing and say, part of the problem is if you start with unacceptable monitoring, even if you don't know it's unacceptable monitoring, uh, even if you roll it back later, you still have all the data. Yeah. You know, even if today we say, oh my God, everything we did on Facebook, you know, all the data that Google kept, all the all the stuff that Twitter analyzed, you know, uh, we can't do that. Um, but you already have it. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Right, right. So, but but you said something earlier. We, we, we talked about NIST. Um, you know, years ago, let's just say 20 years ago, uh, just to cap it off somewhere, um, the idea that of the financial community accepting NIST guidance, and I'll say the big three regulatory, not to pick on financial. So let's just say uh, financial insurance and healthcare sort of looked on NIST as, you know, those, those wonks, those quants, those squints who, you know, wrote some stuff down, but they they don't know anything about banking. What do they know about healthcare? Um, I, I saw that change a little bit, over the last few years as an outsider, what have you seen from the inside? Has, has you know, do people value NIST today? I think so. Um, I think the, the work that they've put in over the last decade or more, um, and actually I know it goes back to the early, into the late 90s. I remember meeting with some folks over at NIST on certain cybersecurity things in the late 90s. I was working on a, I was trying to commercialize a piece of technology that did network forensics right before the dot-com crash. Um, we got wiped out by the crash, but um, I learned a ton about sort of network security and spent a lot of time over at NIST trying to get smarter. Um, I, th- I think the the momentum has really built around uh, the frameworks they've built, and a lot of it is really about um, the army of people that have been created to be um, schooled in how to use those frameworks. Um, I will say that they're, it's like reading the FAR, the Federal Acquisitions Regulations. I mean, they're, they're abstract, they're obtuse, they hold together well as a whole, but looking at any one part, you don't understand the context until you've been through it, you know, maybe 10 or 15 times. And I wouldn't consider myself anywhere approachable to even be facile with it, but I do, I do work with people and hire people who are, uh, and it's nice that they're out there. I think there's a lot of lot of interest in um, leveraging knowledge that's already been accumulated by somebody who studied it at, at depth 
The other thing I'll say about it is like industry and industry in a way, because um, one of the difficulties and blessings of being a technologist, and I'll explain a little bit of each, is kind of like Neo in Matrix. You know how he looks at things and he's just these numbers going by? Like a lot of businesses think they're unique, right? And are, but, but really it's ones and zeros. And, you know, and you abstract it away and it's customer data or, you know, national secrets or whatever it is, but it's, it's ones and zeros that have a certain level of, you know, care that need to be put around them. And so it's very easy to sort of like solve for any particular industry just by, you know, leveraging it from a purely technical and domain knowledge perspective, right? I'm not industry domain knowledge, but sort of security domain knowledge perspective. So I, the challenge in that is that a lot of our um, industry partners and folks in different you know business positions don't know that, right? They don't like and don't seem to recognize that Neo effect, right? They don't like it that you can look at them and see them as just like anything else. Um, so, um, so I think overcoming that perception is more on the business side than the technology side would be my no, oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I I've had a a saying I made up probably 25 years ago now, and you know every customer is unique, just like every other customer. Just like every other. <laughs> and and you know I I have to say that served me well. But I will say in 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 sorry because this is your show, not mine. Um, you know certainly the pushback we got against the BSIM starting back in 2008 was. I'm a, I'm a special snowflake. You can't look at yeah. me with a model and yeah. think anything about me. And then we'd spend Gary McGraw, as you mentioned, yeah. and I would spend two days with somebody or Drew and I, and we'd go, hey, look, you look like this. And they'd go, holy cow, it's like you've known me all my life. Yeah. You know. Um, anyway, you mentioned quantum earlier and you mentioned getting ahead of it. Um, I, I just briefly, because, you know, who knows what that's actually going to come. What it, do you think getting ahead of it means chief quantum officer i mean how do we how do we rally at one point to get enough knowledge to do something you know is it just put somebody in charge and hope the right thing happens that's a good question um i i think a lot of the early education that happens in companies really comes from either consortia or sort of like the social networking that happens with peer professionals and kind of learning through, you know, there's always some, some company like a Sigital that's a, you know, that's leading the charge on application security. Um, I was part of a company that sort of led the charge on relevance rank search, which, you know, search, right. That, that wasn't a thing before we did it commercially. And then Nowadays, you would never know, right? So there's always some pioneers out there. So trying to connect the pioneers with, uh, with, with folks who aren't steeped in that really forces, I don't know, I got to know Alan Kay pretty well through a series of conferences I went to, and he has this expression, he says, you can teach a child anything, including relativity. You just have to create an intellectually honest simplification. And so just having those experts work really hard creating intellectually honest simplifications for people like me so i can sort of understand and appreciate sort of what's going on i think is an important sort of like aspect of our industry it just it happens we have lots of 
conferences and consortiums and groups and peer peer meetings and so forth that, that sort of feed that. I think we're way early for anything like a cheap con quantum. Sure, but, but it's so cool. It's so cool. <laughs> a great title, man. <laughs> Larry, I want to dig back uh, in a couple things you talked about <laughs> architecture. Um, yeah. Having spent uh, a good chunk of my youth uh, coding distributed systems, I completely understand uh, where you're going. So from a CIO's perspective, CTO's perspective, how do you how do you deal with this problem? Is this a is this a training problem? Is this a build reusable code problem? Is it is there another way to attack this? Like how are you attacking that problem of getting architecture right? Because we see more and more customers clamoring around this problem. Um, I, I think a lot of it goes back to um, hiring. Um, you know, I think there's a there's a tendency in our industry to, and this is not a. Our industry has room. It's a big tent. It has room for lots of people to come in. But at the end of the day, the people who are making the core technical decisions should be really well grounded in their business, right? And so. Um, whether they have a CS degree or an advanced CS degree or not, um, you know, the, there has to be some level of it, sort of like semi-academical foundation and really understanding the principles underlying um, computing. Um, we've got, you know, 70 plus years of, you know, of knowledge that, you know, a lot of folks coming into the industry who just learned to program in high school as programmers, and then maybe they go through a business school degree or whatever, but then they, you know, can't get a job and don't want to work in accounting. They get a programmer job. Don't pick on business school people, love them, uh, but um, you know, you where do you get that grounding? And so I, I think a lot of it is number one, making sure that you hire the right people to make those key architectural decisions, and then structure your organization in a way that they're the ones that are empowered to make those decisions, right? Order review work. Uh, be part of the discussion that's going on um, as as solutions are getting framed. Um, I, I think that that kind of is part of the baking it in process. Um, I think training that knowledge, I I think, and I've observed in the sort of like in the software product business, um, it's it's a bit of a you got to have you got to know your chops coming to that business. You can't afford to train people, right? Sort of like you hire the best. I went to a talk by. Um, Blanking on his name, but he's got a new stealth startup. Came out of some workstate work systems. He's building a um, enterprise computing platform again. Right, believes that on-prem computing has life in it. Um, and you know, it was really envious to hear him talk in ways. Got fifty or sixty people. He handpicked all of them. They're super top of the game. We got all the skill he needs. He doesn't have time to train them on anything. But that's not the case in IT. In IT. Right, our problems are much more expansive. We have many, many more systems to work with. Um, they have longevity. Most large companies that have been around for any amount of time probably have systems that are 30 to 50 years old, right? And so you've got to sustain these things, and you can't do that just by hiring the top 1%. It's not going to work. So I think a lot of IT organizations have to become development programs, and how you put that development program into place because um, I, I do think most people want to learn when they're exposed um, to the history and the substrate of our knowledge in this industry, um, they many of them will grasp onto it. And that'll pay dividends for the rest of their career. You know, once they learn, oh, I didn't know there was this thing called distributed transactions. Duh. 
right? Oh, and there are people who have actually written simple programming solutions that allow me to actually solve for that. Oh, okay, I probably won't make that mistake again. And so I, I do think education within within the business has to be has to be part of it, particularly for businesses that have an IT organization, right? Not software product companies. So hire good architects, yeah. let them do their <laughs> job, yeah, and force the developers to pay attention to them. This is yeah. what you're saying. Okay, yeah. that's great. And in in threat model everything. The threat you're model everything. Well, that, you're not threat modeling real, everything. That's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where sort of like the NIST framework comes in and providing guidance on how you should implement some of those constructs. That's how that's how we're seeing it anyway. Okay. Um, so it, it actually makes makes a ton of sense uh, to think about things like that. The other the other thing I will say is that IT gets behind one of the things that we've done for a long time, like at least in my with my colleagues and peers, is like separate the notion of an EA who is governance focused from a principal and engineer who is truly solution focused and probably has an advanced computing degree, right? And you know, I spent a short time at AWS and AWS got this in space, right? The principal engineer function. You see this at other sort of like large internet companies where they actually have this PE and they value right? People going up the pure individual contributor training to very high levels because of their skill. And so making sure that, you know, you need the EA governance function, but a lot of times people doing that, like don't have the technical depth to go do solution engineering, right? They're the ones who are going to decode NIST, right? And help make sure you put the processes in place to support that. That would be like watching paint dry to a solutions architect, right? They yep. would never do that. They would never pay attention to that. And on the flip side, the solutions architect types, the PE types, uh, you know, really can go deep on a particular, on multiple particular aspects of solutions uh, to make sure that they're engineered well and sort of make sure uh, you pay attention to the foundations of what you're building. Um, that's, I think, creating that separation. I don't think that's caught on widely um, in IT yet, but I'm starting to see that as, um, as an organizational design pattern that has legs. No, that's interesting. But Larry, what are you what are your thoughts on low code, no code? Do you have any? And and if so, how does it relate to this whole conversation? Um yeah. <laughs> I I I'm old enough to remember case tools, right? And the promise oh, of my. Uh, software you know, through pictures. Yeah, yeah, software through pictures. Um, there was some great tools. There was one academic who put something together. I think it was in the early 90s where it was all an ASCII-driven command language or it automatically generates. Like this stuff's been around for a really long time. I mean, 70s, 80s, whatever. And um, I think it has a role. Um, what tends to happen is that unless you're in a really, really finite domain, like a really well-known domain that is where the solution is really mapped it out well. Um, at some point, if your business is at all complicated, you run into the limitations of low-code solutions, um, which is you now start extending them and then you're in upgrade hell. Oh. Um, and it may be worth it. Um, you, you always have to value it for your business, but I think the lens through which we should look at this is understanding what's truly differentiated for your business and what's undifferentiated. And where it's truly differentiated, you're going through a one-way door when you pick a low-code solution. 
and just be aware. It might be the right decision, but you've really got to think through what happens two years, three years, four years, 10 years from now. Will that vendor still be in business? How will I do upgrades? Um, you know, um, how do I integrate key aspects of um, our differentiated business that maybe weren't contemplated by the vendor originally? Um, so I, I think, um, I mean, I'd love them in some places, sort of some of the workflow BPMN solutions out there are just amazing and can give you massive amounts of leverage. But those are like essentially DSLs, domain-specific languages for workflow, right? That's not a business-specific system. Um, you know, and we, we use things in the back office a lot, whether it's for, you know, finance or um, HR or procurement or whatever. Those are all great. But I think when it comes to the core of your business, you kind of got to be careful about it. Very cool. Well, we're getting kind of to the end here, Larry. I've got one more question for you. So what made it, what kind of motivates you every day to kind of get up and keep thinking about this stuff and, and keep building the systems and, and worried about things like cybersecurity as you're doing it? I have a, kind of a, an aspiration. I have a colleague, you probably know him, who told me um, a while ago, he said, after 50, you don't have jobs anymore. You have projects. And I see the role of, of um, you know, IT leadership as, at least for me, as making the IT function an innovator for, for, for the business we're in. And it, it takes a while to do that. Um, you know, Marty Kagan has some quote where he says 70% of all business innovations come from technology. And so um, I, just, I just think the thing of it for me is like, how does technology help our customers and help the business we're in? And how do you actually create that innovation, that engine of change, that en engine of growth? Um, those are the things that kind of keep me going at it, is looking for the looking for the growth and the innovation out of technology to help customers in the business. Yeah, you know, normally uh, I would ask this question this way: I would say, "How is AI gonna change your job?" But I want to ask you a different question: How do you want AI to change your job? Well, that's interesting um, twist. Um, how do I want AI to change my job? I would love AI to eliminate needless toil. Awesome answer. I think a lot of organizations, particularly IT organizations, they're held to such high the regulated industries, high standards, right? That we put processes and procedures in place because we have to, and that creates friction. And friction is the enemy of innovation and the enemy of productivity. Um, and there are lots of places where, I mean, it isn't sexy at all, but something like onboarding an employee, right? Yeah. Um, you know, getting them access to all the systems they need to get access to, getting access to all the knowledge they need to know about the context they're parachuting into, um, you know, helping them learn the tools of the company because they're all different. Um, I remember, you know, at AWS, they have massive training programs and learning their tooling and so forth and just coming on board with that. And it's, it's that way everywhere, right? You got to learn something new. So I, I just think let's point it at needless toil and make our lives better. I like that. Needless toil. Let's eliminate that. Outstanding. Well, Larry, look, we want to thank you very, very much, man, for spending time with us today. We're certain that your insights will uh, help somebody address the challenge out there in architecture land or toil or 
quantum physics or something. Uh, but it's been great chat, man, without a doubt. And look forward wow. to seeing you soon. Thanks so much. Love being here. Appreciate the opportunity. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Larry. Bye.